Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. This is the real episode 197, not to be confused with last week's episode, which was 196, but I mislabeled it as 197. But then I went back and I relabeled it as 196. There's no missing episode, folks. This is the real episode 197. We've got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Did people think it was like a, an Easter egg sort of deal or they had it, to go like hunting for clues to find the hidden episode or what? It, it turned out to, in the shoe like a meme. Right. So it's like, oh, where's the hidden episode? And then people are like, oh, do you have like a Patreon? Is this like a pod, you know, Barbell Medicine Podcast Plus? I was like, no, we do not have an OnlyFans type situation here where we're releasing like limited edition content. I just am dumb and can't count <laughs> in, in integers. So yeah, I mislabeled it, but then I relabeled it. So this is episode 197. We're going to talk about caffeine and coffee's perform, uh, effect on performance and health. But before that, you know, just some update stuff. Uh, life is treating you well, Doctor B. So far, so good. Uh, we're knocking out a few episodes during this during this break before I go back to the to the hospital. And otherwise, I had a swim this morning and a lift this afternoon, and things are things are going all right. Now, how much time did you have between your swim and your lift? How many hours? Uh, so I'm still on my period off from the hospital, so I'm not um, kind of crunching things together immediately back to back. So today, I went over to the pool at like nine o'clock, and I swam for I don't know maybe like thirty or forty minutes. And then I trained actually just before we're recording this, which we're starting around 5 p.m. Uh, my time. So like from 3 to 4 or 3.30 to 4.30, something like that here. So. so I see you just had the ideal, if not optimal amount of time between your aerobic conditioning session and your lifting session, which is at least six hours. You need it at was, least six hours. And it was uh, not planned that way. It was naturally self-selected. I'm just you know, no, following my, my instincts. No, no, <laughs> no, can't be. You need at least six hours between the sessions. Otherwise, the interference effect happens. We all know that to be true. Well, I guess both sessions were a waste then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just throw it all away. No, that's a question. We'll have to do a dedicated podcast to the interference effect. Although I did do that with Dr. Eric Helms. I, I think it's episode 136 six now and but the ideas are never going to go away so it's always worth never. a rehash yeah yeah we'll just keep doing it until people stop asking <laughs> yeah it's funny so today i did well first off big announcement and when i say big announcement i mean completely unimportant to anyone who doesn't care about what i'm personally doing training wise but <laughs> i decided so after last friday's session i was supposed to deadlift heavy well let me back up last thursday i was supposed to squat heavy and I could not tolerate anything more than 250 kilos like on my back. Like I squatted 250 kilos at at zero leg leg wise, but at 10 shoulder wise, just holding the bar was like. And this was to to catch people up. This was due to uh, pain from a fall off of a yeah. dirt bike. Yeah, if you're familiar at all with like physics and dirt bikes, <laughs> what <laughs> an object in motion. No, um, so you can high side or low side in a corner. So I have a rule in that I only want to crash in corners. The idea being like, I'm not adding like a vertical displacement to my fall. Like I'm just falling, you know, to the one side or the other. The low side is preferable. That just means you're going too slow and your lean angle is too great. And you just mm. fall straight, like just down yeah. the pancake. And you're like, mm, embarrassing. High side, on the other hand, you're going too fast and your lean angle isn't enough. Slash you gain a bunch of traction all of a sudden and you go with force. Outward. Into yeah. the into the turn. I see. Yeah. Correct. Uh no good. So I high sided. So it was not the shoulder that I dislocated back in February. It was the other shoulder. And I didn't dislocate or anything. I just jammed it. And I was like, that feels unpleasant, but I'll probably be fine. And in fact, uh three days later I benched uh three ninety one, so 177.5 for six singles at, you know, six or seven. And I was like, this doesn't feel great, but if I can bench, 
I can surely squat and deadlift <laughs> a couple days later. I mean, it just, yeah, it's just a weight. There's a weight limit, right? It's just like, ah, can't tolerate that. And then when I tried to deadlift on Friday, I got to 220 kilos and then the traction on the, I just could not tolerate. I'm like, how am I going to go to a meet and deadlift, you know, 700 plus, like, even if my legs and back will do it, my arm and, and upper limb won't. Yeah. And then I was like, and, it, I- and it's a local meet. Yeah. Yeah. Just ra- I ran out of uh, F's to give about, about that. And so, yeah, I just made the executive decision, uh, pull out of the meet. And, uh, I really have been hankering to give this like bodybuilding thing a try, not because I want to compete. Like, honestly, I'd have to spend the next three months shaving down, I think just to like <laughs> get on stage. Like we just run out of big razors or whatever. But, uh, I just think it'd be an interesting way to train. Um, I have done it for short spurts, like three or four weeks at a time, but I decided I'm gonna do like a full, like 12 week kind of thing. So I'm using our bodybuilding template and I had my first session today and boy, let me tell you, one, my heart rate was on average about 30 beats per minute higher than it normally was during a powerlifting session. Two, I've never sweated so much in my entire life. That's not true. I'm exaggerating. But like in training, I was like, dude, what? This is wild. And oh boy, a full-on leg pump? <laughs> that is uncomfortable. I don't know. Like when people are like, I'm chasing the pump. I'm chasing the opposite. Like whatever the opposite is, I'm chasing that. So You had, you had some, some limb ischemia. During- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's weird. I think I don't. In my life, I've probably done, like when I first started training, I guess you could classify that as like bodybuilding-esque training. But I, again, just really haven't done that, a lot of that. Uh, like isolation work, high reps, stuff mm-hmm. like calf raises. I did calves today. I, I, I did standing calf that's raises. A, and that's a big step for us. <laughs> dumbest exercise that I've ever done. <laughs> I, I understand why people do it. I just, I don't train calves. And if you've seen my calves, you know that to be true. I just get away with them being thick and veiny. And so now maybe we'll get, maybe my lateral gastrocnemius will show up. My entire tricep serrate complex will now be complete. So we'll post it on the tubes. I'm, I'm sure I'll use some clickbaity title like powerlifter turns to bodybuilding. And we'll get a bunch of that's how you downloads. Get the people going. Yeah, people ask, oh, what have you, did you change your calorie intake? <laughs> no. Anyway, but to tie this back uh, into your conditioning and art resistance training split, I did my conditioning directly after. I didn't take any break. There was no like intro workout nutrition or whatever. I just hopped on the air bike because I don't have an air bike. I have the Concept 2. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at this gym, they have the air bike. And I was like, oh, I can just do my aerobic intervals on that. And it'll be a different kind of thing. And uh yeah, let's hope that both sessions weren't a complete waste because yeah. I didn't separate them by at least six hours. <laughs> I think anyway, it'll be all right. I think we'll be fine. So yeah, uh, I've got some some YouTube content going up. We do have a new video, uh, two new videos from the Q&A with Dr. Derek Miles. Those are on our YouTube channel. We'll have some training vlogs going up. We'll get Austin to send me some stuff. Maybe some, can we get some swimming stuff? Uh, like, I'll see if I can uh, enlist Lorraine to get some footage. You know, sure. if, you, if you're in a Speedo. <laughs> I, I can see this thumbnail already. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that'll be coming up. Uh, yeah, if you want to send us some videos, we'll we'll do some form checks like we always do. Just send them landscape. So that's get your phone wide. Don't send us a single. Send us a multi-rep set. And you can send these to media at barbellmedicine.com. Um, ideally, they're 720p, 1080p, something like that. So if, if you have to use like a link sharing thing, that's fine. But media at barbellmedicine.com, send those. And uh, yeah, you can make it to the vlog and we can do some, some form review there. Uh, also, we have seminars coming up. Los Angeles next month. 
couple weeks away. We have a few spots left, less than a handful. So if you want to, if you're on the West Coast, you want to come to a two-day live in-person health and performance seminar with Dr. Baraki, myself, Leah, Alan Thrall is going to be there, Tom Campitelli, the whole crew. Um, check that out. Link in the description below. The pain and rehab team, they've got a new, all-new seminar that's going to be in Miami in January of 2023. And then uh, we're back with our two-day health and performance seminar in Atlanta and New York in February and May, respectively. So if you want to come hang out with us, learn what we do here at Barbell Medicine, learn about health, performance, how to program, uh, and do some lifting with us, get some coaching, sign up for a seminar. Uh, okay. So today we're going to talk about caffeine and coffee and it's uh, their effects on performance and health. Now, obviously not the same thing, so we'll have to kind of go into this. But if you are thinking that some of this information sounds a little bit familiar, well, I've written two unique pieces on this previously published in our newsletters. Uh, one was in 2019 and one was in 2021 as an update. And this is an even further update and expansion on uh, that material. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, like, look, you're missing the boat. We're not just spamming you with like, hey, buy this stuff. We just publish original information there and you just get it delivered to your inbox every month. So if you go to our website, there's a pop-up. You can sign up for our stuff. Uh, there's also a link in the description below if you have been to our website too many times that we just gave up on asking you to join our newsletter. But if you want to, it's free. Get unique content. Yeah, do that. Okay, so in this week's podcast, there are a few things that we want to address. One, how does caffeine work? Two, is caffeine safe? Three, what is the best way to administer caffeine? And four, what is the correct dose for caffeine? And we'll talk about how caffeine improves exercise performance, if it does at all, and then also its effect on health. We'll do that along the way. So Austin, before we get into this, uh, you, uh, you a coffee guy? Like I know um, the answer, but let's talk yeah. to the audience. You're, like a lot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I mean, I, I, though I did not actually start drinking any coffee at all um, until medical school. Uh, going all through, through college and, and all that, I didn't really... I hadn't really been introduced to it, I guess. I don't know. I never really picked up the habit. And then once I got to med school, I definitely did. And then progressively later in medical school, you know, during certain periods of time, found that I uh, needed to lean on it a little bit, depending on what was going on in terms of my clinical demands and rotations and hours and things like that. And then that uh, escalated probably a bit further in residency. And uh, now I definitely don't feel like I need it because my work life and hours are, are not nearly what they were, you know, in the past. Uh, but it tastes good. And I like to make it in in various forms. So for sure, I'm a coffee guy. <laughs> yeah, same. I, uh, I also did not start drinking coffee. Man, it had to be third year of medical school. Like I didn't drink it at all through college, even like the break that I had in between where I was getting my master's, running a gym, all doing all the stuff. I, I just never, I never needed it. I was like, I think it's before the sleep apnea hit. Yeah, <laughs> and then I was just self medicating, and then even after I got that treat, I was like, you know, coffee tastes great, and I kind of like this little caffeine buzz. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a daily thing. How many cups a day are you drinking? You drinking for coffee? Um, probably anywhere from two to four. Two to four. Any any yeah. additional caffeine outside of that? No, no other caffeine. I don't really um, use caffeine for like I. For, I don't feel like a real stimulant effect out of it. I don't mm. take uh, caffeine pills or pre-workouts or any of that other kind of thing. Yeah. I'm like, so in the morning I have an espresso and not a Nespresso. That's trash. Just look, if you're listening to this and you got an espresso machine and or a Keurig, look, do your thing. If you like it, I love it. But you're, there's some serious coffee gains that you're missing out on. If, if you like that, real coffee is going to change your life. Uh, but yeah, I have an, uh, an espresso. 
and a cup of coffee in the first thing in the morning. And then I'll have a second cup midday. And then I'll take about two or 300 milligrams of caffeine before a workout that I care about. If I don't care about the workout, meaning that's like low priority or something like that, or if it's later in the day, I just won't because, you know, if every workout's important, then no workout's important. And also I just would rather sleep than, you know, lift five more pounds, but okay. So we're both, we're both on the caffeine slash coffee tip, uh, which is not uh, unique, especially in the United States. About 85% of the U.S. population consumes at least one caffeinated beverage per day. The average intake is about 165 milligrams per day, which is about two cups of coffee. Now, it depends on the beans, how long they've been roasted. As you as they roast longer and longer and longer, become darker, darker, darker. There's less caffeine content. Also depends on how you brew it um, as far as the caffeine content. But on average, a cup of coffee has got about 80 to 90 milligrams of caffeine. So most folks, 85% of the U.S. population is consuming about two cups of coffee per day. The 90th percentile for caffeine intake is reported to be 380 milligrams per day, which is four cups of coffee. So those folks are, I just assume that they're trying to take work breaks for coffee because it's, you know, it's not as popular or as common anymore to smoke. I think it's like 14% of the adult population in the United States still smokes. Uh, so instead of taking a smoke break, you're taking a coffee break. Makes sense. Sounds better. Yeah. Sounds 100% harm reduction. No. <laughs> <laughs> so given the prevalence of caffeine use, it should come as no surprise. There's a ton of research on the topic that we can use to answer our questions. And uh, all of the relevant citations will be provided in the description below. There's a ton of them. So if you're trying to scroll to like the link to the newsletter or whatever, you're going to have to go, go a while. But I'll do my best to link all of the research here. Now, Austin, I, I realize that you have a very funny screen name, username for this. Uh, whenever I send you the invite for Zencaster, I can't change my name. I can't be funny in that way, but you can be funny. Uh, this one is big chlorogenic acid. Yeah. Since you're the chemist, <laughs> did you know that, did you know that that was like the caf caffeic acid, like ester that's in caffeine and tea and stuff like that? Or did you look that up? I didn't look it up like for this podcast, but I know of it particularly because that that substance has been marketed in isolated form as a weight loss supplement and things like that in hmm. years past. And so I remember being places and, you know, at the checkout aisle or whatever, and you see some supplement, either a supplement or like a magazine cover that talks about chlorogenic acids and weight loss and stuff like that, which is, you know, we'll, we'll get to all that stuff later. <laughs> but yeah. that's kind of where I initially saw that. And then, you know, people talking about that with like catechins and epi catechins and green tea and, and coffee Jesus. extracts and all these other kind of things that people use that don't really work. But have you, you ever know, heard of, <laughs> have you ever heard of a coffee enema? Uh, unfortunately I have, I have no experience <laughs> no with personal myself experience. or with patients, but, uh, definitely a thing that is, uh, out there in the, in weird health uh, land. So it seems like, is it the grounds or is it like, do you <laughs> brew the coffee, let it cool to room temperature and then you just, you funnel it? Like what's, the I, I certainly hope you let it cool. I, I have no idea. I, <laughs> yeah, it seems like the grounds would be like, I don't know that, how do you pressurize that to like. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you have a pump that like pumps it? Because it's not just going to flow. So it's got to be liquid. And then it, you have to make sure it's like fung like fungus free and like doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Sounds like you're going to have to find a, an actual guest expert on this topic. Ah, we're good. Episode. <laughs> ah, we're good. 100% good. Yeah, I don't think that's the route of administration that I'd prefer to use or recommend to folks. <laughs> okay, so question number one, how does caffeine work? And I'll just, you know, cut to the chase here. The mechanism is incredibly complex. There are a number of animal studies and isolated human tissue studies. So like uh, where they take, you know, a, a muscle fiber or they take a, 
you know, other piece of t- human tissue and apply caffeine to it or some other intermediate metabolite. And they're like, see, this is how caffeine works. But these really haven't been replicated in actual human studies where they take intact humans, give them coffee or caffeine uh, or other vehicle containing caffeine and say, oh, this is what happened. Uh, the existing evidence is kind of sparse in that type of sense, but we know the following. One, caffeine increases the calcium release in muscle tissue. So there's three major types of muscle tissue in the body. So cardiac uh, muscle tissue, skeletal muscle tissue, or as the Aussies say, skeletal muscle tissue, and then also smooth muscle. You'll find that mostly in the GI tract, uh, but also the vessels and and things of that nature. Uh, The increased calcium release in these muscle tissues results in a number of actions, such as increased muscle contraction force and muscle contraction force potential. So the muscle can actually contract harder and more frequently. Uh, it also inhibits phosphodiesterase enzymes to increase intracellular uh, cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP. Austin, real, real briefly, what do those things do? What are, you know, need, you don't need to tell us the chemistry of them, but like, what are these, these, these the, things? The simple, the simple way for folks who are not really well-versed in, you know, molecular biology, cell biology, things like that, is that these are signaling molecules. And so by altering levels of signaling molecules that can then deliver a signal that can then uh, impact cell function um, in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, you know so what, that's kind of the short story. When I found out that caffeine was a uh, phosphodiesterase enzyme inhibitor, I go, ooh, PDE5, perhaps? And if, you, if that sounds familiar to you at all, then, you know, Viagra, Cialis, the now defunct Levitra or whatever, all of those were PDE5 inhibitors. And that's how it relaxed the smooth muscle of the vessels in the uh, <coughs> genital region. And uh, that's, uh, you know, one of the mechanisms by which those works. But uh, caffeine coffee doesn't really do that unfortunately so 10 out of 10 would not recommend i mean or or fortunately with 85 percent of the population i don't know this every single day i don't know which kind of society you want to live in man (laughs) (laughs) so it does that it also blocks adenosine receptors with varying potency at each receptor there seems to be some type of uh selective sensitivity with which adenosine receptors uh caffeine actually uh blocks um, and it also increases norepinephrine release from the sympathetic nervous system. And as far as the autonomic nervous system goes, there's the fight or flight portion. That's the sympathetic nervous system. And then there's the rest and digest, uh, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. So an increased release of norepinephrine from the sympathetic nervous system gives you more of these catecholamines floating around. So you can, uh, you know, do stuff like fight or flight, (laughs) or you dilate your pupil or otherwise uh, uh, increase your activity. So while it has this wide range of like molecular functions, the most important ones as far as outcomes go, uh, improves, uh, caffeine improves things like cognitive functions such as vigilance, reaction time, memory, reasoning, attention, learning, decision making, all of these things reduce errors in both rested and sleep deprived individuals. So from like a cognitive standpoint, if people are like, what's the most well-studied performance enhancing drug I can use for cognitive function, uh, that would be caffeine. People are like, what about Adderall? It's like, that's a whole nother podcast. But actually, the data on that's quite interesting. And it's not as much of a slam dunk as you would think. But again, another podcast potentially in the future. Uh, It also increases the squeezing force of each heartbeat contraction. So it can make, it basically makes your heart eject more blood than it otherwise would, which again, prepares you to uh, fight or flight or, you know, exercise or something like that. In caffeine-naive individuals, so folks who previously have not consumed caffeine, um, 
the, you can see a transient so sh- and, and short-term um, increase in blood pressure because of the increased like sort of uh, ejection of blood from the heart. Uh, but if you drink coffee for a long period of time, your habitual consumer basically has no effect on blood pressure. Uh, and I should also say that it is interesting in studies kind of uh, evaluating the blood pressure changes secondary to caffeine administration. Uh, this appears to be uh, uh, less if you drink coffee than if you take in isolated caffeine. So either from a caffeine gum, lozenge, uh, caffeine powder of some sort, caffeine suppository, I assume that exists, but <laughs> have not have not been able to locate that. Uh, and also I should say that caffeine does not reliably increase heart rate in most individuals. So even when you study you know, the effect of taking in an energy drink with 200 to 300 milligrams of caffeine uh, from uh, on folks, they're basically each heartbeat becomes stronger, but the blood pressure increase is pretty negligible. And same thing with the heart rate. Pretty much doesn't change at all, unless, again, these folks are new to caffeine. But if you drink caffeine all the time, your, your body knows what to do with it and says, eh, we'll just make the heartbeat a little stronger. And if you're doing something, we'll, you know, the the activity itself uh, will call upon the body systems to increase the heart rate and, and stuff like that. One thing that happens a lot, and Austin, I want to get your take on this. People say or ask us all the time, hey, does coffee or do caffeine, caffeinated beverages, do they count for hydration? You know, people don't drink, you know, fluids anymore. They hydrate. Mm. We're, we're on that. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea is like, oh, but if I drink caffeine or a, ca- a coffee or a caffeinated beverage, uh, I'm going to pee more. I, I noticed that. So it can't be contributing to hydration. It seems like the increase in urine production, uh, you know, with a pretty moderate dose of caffeine, like three to four cups of coffee, uh, does increase urine out, urinary output. But it seems like, at least what I've seen, that on balance, you're still net accruing fluid, meaning like the amount of fluid you drink is greater than the amount of excess urine, urinary output that you're seeing. Is that something yeah. you're familiar with? Yeah. I mean, this is something that's been said for a long time. Most people who have you know, read or been involved in this conversation have heard this idea that coffee is a diuretic or something, and it's just simply not really true. Uh, there are some impacts that can be detected at certain doses on things like antidiuretic hormone that that impacts urine composition and, and volume and, and things like that. Um, but again, to the extent that that effect even exists, it is outweighed by the actual volume of fluid that you are drinking. Um, and and there's even been some some research on you know dosing caffeine directly. Uh, independent, you know, like separate from from consuming it with a cup of coffee and things like that, and don't really see a reliable, you know, diuretic uh, action as far as getting people like quote unquote net negative, as we say a lot. Yeah, <laughs> getting getting people, you know, more uh, to to lose more volume ultimately than they than they had uh, before the dosing. So this is not really a thing, uh, and those drinks uh, definitely count towards your overall fluid volume water intake, however yeah. you want to frame it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the the you know the de- definition of a diuretic is anything that increases urinary output. So, like if you're increasing urine output, technically it's a diuretic. But if it doesn't, you know, if you're drinking more than you're actually getting, you know, that's that's leaving. Well, net, you're you're still positive there. So, yep, definitely counts. Ten out of ten would not use you know caffeinated beverages or caffeine in and of itself as a diuretic if you're trying to cut weight. That's not not the move, as the kids would say. Uh, probably one of the most uh, famous or, or frequently experienced side effects of caffeine intake is that it stimulates the gastrointestinal motility of individuals. So basically, uh, if you're, you know, first thing in the morning, you, uh, 
have some food contents in your in your intestines from last night's dinner or yesterday's meals. You have some caffeine, particularly coffee. Uh, yeah, that migrated motor complex gets a moving, and uh, hopefully, there's a bathroom nearby. I think everybody who's drank coffee at some point or a caffeinated beverage has experienced that. Uh, interestingly, this may exacerbate certain like IBS type syndromes, so irritable bowel syndrome type syndromes in certain individuals. Um, other few things, it can contribute to reflex, reflux. So uh, uh, GERD if, uh, is the common term there for people who are susceptible to that. And so I've actually experienced this when I got a little thicker than a snicker uh, and I'd put my belt on. Um, for like squats or deadlifts, and I'd had a caffeinated beverage prior to training, I would get some reflux symptoms. And when I didn't, I didn't. And so one of those things, if, if you, it's not worth it <laughs> to experience that during training with the caffeine, so that may be something uh, to modify if, if you get that commonly. Do you yeah, see- there, there are a variety of different substances that can impact, basically at the bottom of the esophagus, there's this muscular sphincter that, that kind of squeezes down in normal function um, in order to prevent reflux of acid from the stomach back up into the esophagus. And there are a variety of substances, caffeine being one of them, um, that can kind of reduce the the tone of that sphincter or ca- cause that muscle to relax a bit. And that can allow for reflux to happen. The thing is, though, that these, um, these uh, kind of triggers, so to speak, are pretty individual and they can vary in, in, you know, in other situations like context dependent, like is this associated with a meal or independent of a meal or, or whatever's going on. Um, so uh, I don't necessarily tell like all patients, you know, to, to avoid this, but rather that it can be a trigger for some folks. And it's something that they can experiment with, particularly for patients who are like, you know, I want to handle this reflux and, and I would prefer to never, you know, need to use any kind of a medication for it or anything like that. Then kind of experimenting with individualized reflux triggers, coffee, maybe, maybe one of them for certain people may not be for, for others. Yeah. Uh, as far as the effects on performance, it is well documented that caffeine administration prior to workout prior to a workout or, or test, increases things like aerobic endurance, muscular strength performance, muscular endurance, power, jumping performance, uh, and things of that nature. We don't really know why, but we do think that the increase in calcium release increases the excitability of the muscle tissue itself. Uh, and we also think that there's sort of um, some psychological effect with like a increased time to fatigue. We think in general, caffeine via its myriad of different molecular mechanisms does all of those things. And again, there's just reliable data all over the place in both both sexes, in all age groups, et cetera, showing, showing this. Um, as far as the dosing and how to do that, we'll get to that later in the podcast. But as far as if you were wondering, does caffeine increase performance, have the potential to increase performance? The answer is yes. There's a caveat though. If you take so much that it induces like this gastrointestinal distress or otherwise makes you jittery or if you have or if you have or are predisposed to some sort of anxiety type symptoms that may actually worsen your performance and that is very similar to a lot of other ergogenic or performance enhancing uh, sort of nutri- uh, nutraceuticals or nutrition uh, practices so for example uh, the Tour de France is often referred to as an eating contest on wheels. And so the idea is like, you want to eat as much as possible so you don't lose body weight. And so you have all this energy, uh, during, you know, each, each, uh, uh, period, uh, or each event. Um, the thing is the capacity for folks to eat while they're cycling at that intensity varies markedly. Some people can eat a lot and be just fine. Other people can eat a little bit. And if they eat any more, they get, they get sick. And guess what happens? You get sick while your performance tanks. So it's very similar here on caffeine. There's a wide range of like 
yeah, this is the dose that would potentially improve performance. This is the dose that would kind of put you over the edge. Um, one thing we've talked about in our seminars now, I know the data on this isn't great, and we've kind of uh, moved away from this. We talk about the Yerkes-Dodson law of like arousal, right? The idea is like you want enough arousal to be at like peak cognitive, physical performance and focus and this and the other. And if you go over that, <laughs> you're kind of on the downslope performance-wise because you're just too hyped. Uh, and if you don't, ha- if you're not, you know, aroused enough, you're not yet at peak. And I, I know that the data on that with respect to like m- different mental strategies is not great for exercise performance, but I think we can use that model for caffeine. It's like, if you, uh, otherwise tolerate caffeine, normally you're not na- naive to caffeine or, ca- uh, uh, coffee things and other sort of vehicles to get the caffeine in your system. Um, if you t- well tolerate it well, there's a certain dose that is likely to increase performance. And above that, you're just going to go too far. You just went overboard and uh, you'll know it because <laughs> you may not make it out of the bathroom. For example, you may have upset stomach and, you know, it's really hard to squat a PR when you're like, boy, I hope everything stays inside. I just, yeah. Yeah. Things of that nature. Uh, as far as health goes, we'll kick this off here um, with appetite. And then uh, Austin, we can go through some of the other uh, uh, more more common um, sort of claims with respect to cardiovascular disease, cognitive function, et cetera. With respect to appetite, the data here is not perfectly clear because humans are different. um, And the way these things have been studied have also been very different. So we don't have like a set protocol for, for studying the effect of caffeinated beverages on appetite. So in general, uh, when and this is this study was using coffee. Uh, if it's administered three to four and a half hours before a meal, there's basically no real change on the subsequent meal's macronutrient intake or total energy intake. Uh, but if you take it right before a meal, there may be some reduction in acute energy intake. The thought process there is that maybe the extra liquid, for example, may provide some sort of satiety signal. But overall, when this when these types of studies uh, are extended for a 24-hour period or multiple-day period, the average energy intake is the exact same. There's no real like lasting effect there for energy intake. Also, uh, in individuals with uh, certain sort of anxiety uh, uh, disorders or uh, major depressive disorders, stuff like that, actual caffeine intake may ac- increase uh, their energy intake at a particular meal. But again, when these types of studies are stretched out um, over a full day, the actual total energy intake seems to be about the same. So I I don't think that caffeine is a strong appetite suppressant, um, certainly not a lasting one that could be used to like really modulate energy intake. Um, and I think that's where I kind of stand on it. It is commonly said, oh, just, you know, oh, you're in a weight loss phase. Let's use caffeine. And that used to be a part of what the ephedrine caffeine (laughs) sort of uh, stack that you would take, the ECA stack. But I think overall, uh, if anything, ephedrine or ephedra, which is banned now, um, was doing the heavy lifting and caffeine just kind of gave people, you know, gave people a little energy on top of that maybe. But I don't think it actually does anything uh, for appetite. I will say that some of the you know, contents in the coffee uh, may have some sort of unique effect with respect to appetite and satiety signaling. There's definitely associations between coffee intake and dietary patterns and total energy intake. And it does seem like people who drink coffee regularly seem to have a more health-promoting dietary pattern, whether that's uh, evaluated via 
uh, certain sort of uh, dietary pattern scores, like how many fruits, servings of fruits and vegetables or fiber intake or lean protein intake, things of that nature. Uh, but I think that's more of a artifact. Effectively, like if you're a person who has access to drink a significant amount of coffee or whatever, you might be a person who doesn't live in a food desert or a food swamp and can, you know, has time to prepare food uh, that we would be viewed as health promoting. So I don't think if you're like listening to this and you're like, I don't drink coffee. Should I drink coffee to have a more health promoting dietary pattern? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the ticket. Or if you're like, I'm going to about to enter a weight loss phase. Should I start drinking coffee now? I'm like, Eh, I don't think it's likely to make, I don't think that's likely to make a difference. And I will say this, probably the most important thing for the listeners, if you drink those very tasty lattes or frappuccinos or, you know, do you know there's a puppercino? A puppercino is a little treat that the, the baristas make for your dog. So while you're getting your coffee, your dog is, it's like whipped cream, I think is just what it is, a puppercino. Because I don't think giving the dog caffeine is the move, but it's, yeah, it's like whatever, some sort of, some sort of uh, either whipped cream or, or, or something like that. But if you're taking in a uh, liquid beverage that has, you know, let's say 700 calories or 1,000 calories, the interesting thing about liquid calories outside of maybe a protein shake uh, is we do not compensate for that fully throughout the day, meaning that liquid calories, you take in 700. Well, later on in the day, you're not going to eat 700 less calories to otherwise be an energy balance. You're just going to eat an additional 700 calories on average compared to if you had, even if it was like a not health promoting treat, you had a donut, you had a pastry, whatever. Uh, if you have a, a food source of this, you are likely to compensate later on if left to your own devices. So uh, one of the very first things that I think both of us recommend when folks are either trying to lose weight or otherwise improve their body composition is that, hey, let's get rid of liquid calories to, you know, outside of, again, maybe protein shakes or meal replacement shakes, kind of stuff like that. Although neither of us really recommend meal replacement shakes unless they are protein shakes. So uh, we'll link some of that in the description below. Um Okay, when we're talking about the rest of these sort of uh, health effects, like, you know, cardiovascular disease, cognitive function, etc., I think it's important to differentiate between coffee and isolated caffeine. Um, coffee, you know, again, from coffee beans, a plant-derived beverage, also has a bunch of other stuff in it, polyphenols, chlorogenic acids, uh, that can in impact health independent of the caffeine. So when you're looking at the effects of coffee on various health outcomes, it's not just the caffeine. So I don't know that we can attribute you know, the benefits that we see in cardiovascular disease, for example, you'll talk about here in a second to just caffeine, rather we say coffee. Um, and then again, there's, there's an additional relationship between people who drink coffee and their dietary pattern overall. So, uh, all right. So Austin, if you're, if someone's asking you, a patient's asking you, Hey doc, what do you think about coffee for cardiovascular disease? What's your, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I would typically do in these kind of conversations with the patients is clarify the last point that you made about when you say coffee, what does that mean to you? <laughs> right? So, you know, there, the, if it's going to be a highly sweetened, super, you know, calorie dense, uh, cal calorie bomb of a beverage, basically, then I'm probably going to advise against that because I think that that is, you know, less likely to, to have health benefit. If it is more like what we would typically drink in a given day, which is typically just black coffee of some kind, um, then there's definitely more of a conversation to be had around that as it pertains to health. And, and to your prior point, I mean, I think that to the extent that these do have significant health impacts, I would attribute it more to those other things and be much less likely to attribute um, many, if any of those uh, uh, health impacts to the caffeine content itself. Um, and, and as you said, I mean, coffee comes from plants or, or tea, similarly, 
plant-derived, uh, um, you know, uh, food um, that people can consume. And, and much like other aspects of the dietary pattern we've talked about before, it's there, there's a lot more to the impacts of a dietary pattern than just like the macronutrients, for example, the carbs or protein or fat. There's all these, you know, non-nutritive, you know, non-calorie containing compounds of the diet that can have significant bioactive kind of effects. So when it comes to cardiovascular disease, again, each of these kind of uh, subtopics, I guess, um, as it pertains to, to the, the effect of coffee on that thing could, could probably be a lengthy podcast of itself, breaking down all the, the literature, but that's not what I intend to do here, nor would it be how I would have this kind of conversation with a patient. But um, pretty large body of research on this stuff as it pertains to coffee tea intake and, and cardiovascular risk, and that includes things like cardiovascular events, like heart attacks, for example, as well as uh, mortality, which would be death due to you know complications of cardiovascular disease. And this data comes in in you know multiple different forms, and of course you know um, there's going to be the standard bickering over epidemiological research and associative research, and and a lot of that, depending on how it's done in terms of its quality and methods, is what leads people to, you know, the typical joke around nutritional research that people have said for decades is, you know, alternating like every other week, they'll see a headline about coffee being good for you or bad for you. That's kind of the, the prototypical example that people use. Um, but I think that if we if we take the overall, overall body of, of research on this, it tends to show a general benefit or neutral effect, depending on the, the context and the outcome and the intake and, and things like that. Um, some data show this supposed kind of J-shaped curve, as is sometimes quoted in this kind of research, where, you know, no intake uh, may have a certain level of risk having some amount of intake you know, is associated with a benefit. And then as you get up to really high intakes, then risk starts to go back up again. Others don't show as clear of this J-shaped curve. Again, I think the bottom line when I'm having these kind of conversations as it relates to cardiovascular risk in general um, and cardiovascular mortality, assuming we're talking about something like regular old black coffee intake or like minimal calorie containing, you know, consumption of this kind of a beverage is going to be a neutral to beneficial effect yeah. um, overall. Yeah, it's very similar to one of the concepts you keep coming back to is like, all right, well, if you're not eating something, for example, what are you replacing that with? And in this case, if you're drinking coffee, what are you, you know, what would you replace that with if you weren't drinking coffee? So I feel like in general, people who drink black coffee, for example, that you're likely seeing the benefit from when they're having four cups a day, three cups a day, they're just not drinking Soda, for example, uh, probably not diet soda, but you know, actual calorie-containing soda or tea or other calorie-containing beverages. I think that's the most likely explanation here, plus or minus what we would call like a food matrix effect from having coffee itself. Like, it, you know, it might be the polyphenols or you know, epicatechins uh, or whatever, you know, something in there that's that's otherwise helping. But the idea, like coffee in and of itself. Or the caffeine, for example, is somehow like uniquely it, beneficial it, it's, to it's health. It's not going to be and, the it's not going to be the strongest lever that I pull on to ma mm. to manage somebody's cardiovascular risk. If that's the, I think that's probably the bottom line point you're getting at. But yep. to the extent that somebody wants to consume it, who may either want to reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease or has established cardiovascular disease, I'm not steering them away from you know black coffee consumption, for example, because I'm worried about it or something like that. What if they have high blood pressure? Also, not a great source of concern for me. Again, I'd be delving definitely into what exactly are they are they drinking if it's if it's somebody with like metabolic risk and insulin resistance and they're consuming, you know, mocha fraps and things like that, then I'm going to be working on that. But black coffee not uh, not a big source of concern for me in in patients with uh, with high blood pressure. 
Yeah, the one thing I'll, I will note here is that there is some data. Now, I haven't seen a lot of data on this, and so usually when I don't see a lot of data all corroborating the same thing, I'm like, eh, I don't know that I feel that strongly. It seems like like unfiltered coffee, uh, like a Turkish coffee, for example, or like a French mm-hmm. press or whatever, mm-hmm. there may be some in some susceptible individuals an increase in total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol due to this uh, compound called uh, cathetyl. Yeah, it's a diterpene, right? That's the whole thing. And so it's like, if you filter your coffee, I'm like less concerned about any sort of reaction here. But if it's always unfiltered coffee and you happen to have, you know, a genetically unlucky uh, sort of hand here and you see this noted increase in LDL and you're not adding butter or like (laughs) (laughs) coconut oil or whatever to your coffee. uh, Yeah, it's, you know, can impact uh, bile acid secretion that we use to, you know, pick up some of the uh, uh, cholesterol carrying molecules and stuff like that. So just just a note, but I haven't yeah. seen a ton of data there. Yeah, I mean, the diterpene deal is, is pretty interesting as it relates to impacts on, on blood lipids. And similarly here, I think that um, it is uncommon for that to be the primary driver of somebody's abnormal blood lipids or abnormal blood yep. cholesterol, such that it, again, going to the unfiltered coffee is not my my first move. I'm typically assessing their, their dietary pattern because usually there's some bigger factors, be it obesity or insulin resistance or certain components of the diet that I'd rather substitute or fiber intake, all the things mm-hmm. that I actually bothered to put in my cholesterol article series on the website. Uh, I notably did not mention the unfiltered coffee thing there. I could have put it as like an asterisk, but it's typically like close to the last thing that I will address if I if they're like, man, I'm super lean. I have this, you know, excellent diet and and I might just like ask that in route to a conversation of like, well, there's probably a fair amount of genetic factors <laughs> at play here and manipulate mm-hmm. that. And 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 kind of similar, you know, if, if if the person has high blood pressure issues and they're slamming a bunch of coffee, I'd be more likely to be like, are you drinking a bunch of coffee because you're real tired because you have sleep apnea and that's causing right, your high exactly. blood pressure that, that I am worried about the coffee itself driving the high blood pressure in the first place. Yeah, I think that's when people are asking like, is coffee healthy? What they're really trying to know, like if, if drinking a significant amount of coffee is like uh, like directly affecting their sort of health trajectory. And it's like, eh, I don't think so. Uh, and we have data corroborating that. So from a cardiometabolic yeah. health standpoint, whether it be atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes, uh, I'm like, eh. if anything, the data shows that people who drink more coffee, particularly if it's black coffee, coffee you know, they tend, they tend to do better. But, you know, all things go out the window if it tends to be this calorie bomb type thing or if the rest of the dietary pattern is kind of trash. But in which case, the bigger lever to pull is let's remove the calories from the liquid beverages and let's yeah. by addressing the overall dietary pattern, not mm-hmm. like no caffeine for you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about neurodegenerative disease? So we're talking about cognitive function. We know that there can be a benefit on like recall and mo- uh, uh, vigilance and attention and attentional focus and stuff like that. So what about actual neurodegenerative disease? So what kind of diseases are we talking about and what's the effect of, of coffee on that? Yeah. So, so what you were talking about is kind of more the acute effects of, of, uh, caffeine intake. Um, and, and so there's been some interesting data. Again, I prefer to differentiate between caffeine and like the, the whole food quote unquote source of be it coffee, tea, whatever. Um, but similar as far as the complexity of the, the body of research, as I just mentioned with cardiovascular disease, as far as how these studies are done, but we're talking about conditions like dementia, be it Alzheimer's or other neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's disease and things like that. And so what would be in what you know when i when i look at it i'm like okay is there very consistent evidence or even associative evidence of like 
these things don't go well together. There's bad, there's, there's, there's suggestion of harm. And it's like, well, no, and typically, uh, typically the associations are of benefit. The question though, of course, is the extent to which that's a, that's a causal sort of thing or the extent versus, you know, more health, healthful lifestyles, um, kind of clustering together people who tend to consume black coffee also having other health healthful lifestyles that will reduce the risk of the development of dementia and that I think remains unclear I mean I, they have done you know trials for example of like isolated direct caffeine supplementation in Parkinson's disease and doesn't seem to really impact the trajectory of, of that mm-hmm. condition or, or or strongly mitigate risk um, and so similar to the cardiovascular situation here uh, my my conclusion at the moment tends to be that hey it is likely to be neutral to beneficial. Um, I don't have reason to suspect that the consumption of these food, of of, uh, of coffee, for example, um, in the forms we've been discussing, will increase your risk of any of these bad things happening. Um, I'm lean more towards it may benefit you to the extent. I mean, we know there are other dietary, you know, food sources of these polyphenol type compounds, be it from you know berries or you know cacao or for certain other kind of things that are that are thought to have beneficial kind of neuroprotective effects, and so maybe similar deal goes here as far as the the polyphenol content of, of coffee, et cetera. Or if that's not so much of a thing, then it's neutral and we're all good and you can enjoy your life and enjoy those acute benefits that you mentioned earlier and far as far as like, you know, cognitive performance in the moment um, versus the the longer term kind of trajectory. Yeah. Any other health conditions that uh, you think coffee helps may help with? Uh, the one that I think is worth mentioning, and this is something that's actually done increasingly in practice, uh, relates to the liver. Um, fatty liver disease is extremely common, um, and it's definitely, if it hasn't already, um, going to overtake things like uh, chronic hepatitis C infection and things like that as a cause of chronic liver disease and liver scarring and fibrosis and cirrhosis and all the complications. And so for folks who have obesity, who have evidence of liver inflammation on their tests, that may suggest either you know regular old fatty liver disease or frank, you know, uh, steatohepatitis, like significant inflammation in the liver. Hepatologists all over the place um, are routinely recommending that their liver patients uh, uh, drink coffee, preferably black coffee. Um, and this is similarly due to some purported benefits of that intake on, um, you know, likelihood of progression of liver scarring fibrosis, potentially improving some of those outcomes. Um, of course, this is not the only intervention that they're recommending. They're also strongly recommending weight loss and, and, and things like that. Um, but this is something that I also, you know, to the extent that I am managing a, a, a person who has among these kind of liver issues in the in the outpatient setting, then it's a topic that I actually do typically discuss with them to recommend um, that they that they uh, intake because similarly the pendulum points more strongly towards towards benefit without a clear signal for for harm. So I'm I'm down with it for for uh, quote unquote liver health, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of livers, wh- how is caffeine even metabolized? Like if your liver is pickled. Which is a medical ter- – that's a medical term. If you have a pickled liver, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what's the deal there? Does, it, does that uh, somehow impact the metabolism of caffeine? This is an interesting area because it, to some extent, explains the, the variation in, in human experience, I feel like, with things like coffee, with caffeine use. Um, most substances that we ingest, be it medications or these, these other kind of like, you know, uh, psychoactive or pharmacologically active bioactive compounds are, are metabolized and excreted. Uh, there are a couple different ways that that can happen, but the liver plays a super important role in that. And there's a whole set of enzymes in the liver that break down, metabolize, again, things like medicines or, or other kind of foreign substances called the cytochrome P450 system. Med- medical students, pharmacy students, et cetera, will have heard of this. We all learned it in, in school and the, our inhibitors and inducers and things that can mess with the function of this system. 
And so one of the enzymes in particular is just called 1A2, CYP1A2. And this is the particular enzyme of the system that metabolizes caffeine. And so caffeine's normal like half-life, the, the amount of time that it takes to break down half of the circulating caffeine in your blood is typically on average about five to six hours, but this can vary pretty widely. And, and the population, it turns out, can be broken down into quote unquote faster or slower metabolizers of caffeine. And this relates to uh, their genetics um, and how that impacts this CYP1A2 kind of enzyme and, and how it functions. And so some folks who would be fast metabolizers are going to be people who can drink a cup of coffee, might it might feel little to nothing out of it, may be able to drink it and then go to sleep and sleep normally, like shortly thereafter, they would probably be more on this fast metabolizer end of the spectrum. And then slower metabolizers are going to definitely feel much more of the impacts um, to the extent that they are, you know, not super habituated to it, or it may take them longer to do that. And then additionally, th that that effect may be more prolonged. And so they may have a much harder time, for example, having a cup of coffee and going to sleep, it may be, you know, they may not be able to have anything much later than the, you know, early to, to mid morning, otherwise they'll experience impacts on their sleep. And there's some interesting research. I mean, there, you know, not only might this relate to how some of the research, uh, kind of comes out in the wash, like showing null research findings, uh, perhaps because you have a whole population mixed of fast and slow metabolizers. And so you don't ultimately see an effect. And so, so this was suggested. There's one interesting paper where some aspect of cardiovascular risk may have been impacted by the kinds of genes that people had in their 1A2 kind of enzyme so that slower metabolizers maybe had a little bit higher risk, um, you know, from a cardiovascular standpoint. That science isn't super settled at this point, but it's an interesting kind of uh, wrench that you could throw into all of this as far as how caffeine may impact uh, health risks may be related to how these people metabolize it and how prolonged it is and things like that. And then additionally, um, those who have, you know, learned about this, uh, enzyme system, be it again in like medical school or pharmacy school have learned about things like inducers and inhibitors. And there's other things that we can do that can then impact how much this enzyme system works. So for example, smoking, um, is an inducer of this enzyme. So those who smoke will also, because it induces this enzyme, it ramps up how active it is. They will metabolize caffeine much more quickly. Um, there are certain medicines that can do it and, and other things that can be consumed or, or, or other uh, drugs that can um, similarly induce the activity of this, meaning that you would metabolize caffeine faster, experience perhaps less of its effects or its effects may be more transient. And then there are other things that would inhibit or block the function of this enzyme. Similarly, there are certain medicines to include uh, oral contraceptive pills, certain antibiotics that are well known to inhibit the 1A2 enzyme that can um, then basically slow down how much you would metabolize caffeine. So it's pretty interesting uh, stuff. And all of this can impact basically how the individual experiences, you know, the, the effects, be it psychoactive or physiologic or whatever of, of caffeine coffee use, and also may impact how that person should use it to the extent they want to, insofar as it may impact things like their sleep quality and recovery and things like that. Yeah. I wonder why there's such a wide variety of SIP, you know, 1A2 function. There's like, like it represents, it's one of the major isoforms in the, in the liver, it like represents a substantial portion of like liver metabolism of everything. Um, and, you know, very important to us, obviously as medications and whatnot, but it's like, why are we so different? Like what yeah. is the what is the evolutionary advantage of having high versus low? Like are we trending one way or the other? And, and if so, why? Don't know, man. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> find out. Okay. Question. So that was question number one. Uh, how does caffeine work? So we talked about metabolism, like the molecular mechanisms, and then also the outcomes that we see in the literature. But uh, you know, an important question here is question number two: Is caffeine safe? 
And at present, there are no specific recommendations for caffeine intake in the United States, though the FDA did release a letter in August 2012 stating that caffeine intakes up to 400 milligrams per day, which is about four to five cups of coffee, is safe for healthy adults and generally does not produce negative side effects. Uh, To that end, regular caffeine ingestion appears to be well tolerated and does not appear to be reliably linked to any sort of disease. And again, this all goes out the window if you're talking about a thousand calorie latte bomb uh, or something like that. But yeah, black coffee we think is generally either neutral or maybe potentially health promoting due to the other stuff that's in the coffee, you know, again, differentiating between coffee and other caffeinated beverages. Importantly, overdoses are exceedingly rare as well. And one term that we use, well, not we, but like the toxicology people use uh, is the LD50, which is the lethal dose 50, the dose needed to kill 50% of a test population, usually rodents, um, That's about 150 to 200 milligrams per kilogram body weight, which is about 75 to 100 cups of coffee for a 70 kilo adult. And I don't, you know, that's not something that someone could reliably drink (laughs) at a given setting. I mean, that's like a couple gallons of coffee. And you know what I'd wonder, I'd worry about first is like washing out the counter current ion. Yeah, exactly. Like your (laughs) kitties just go, Nope, we're out. (laughs) I'd worry about like water intoxication first before, you know, any sort of, uh, uh, coffee effect. Um, in the literature, there's also, uh, uh, some, uh, toxicity reports at about one gram. And that is something that people could do. Do you remember, you remember the, the, the drink surge? Uh, yes, it was like a Mountain Dew-esque <laughs> kind of soda, yeah. Oh, man, it was like green with like a red <laughs> – in red label. It's a surge. It looks like a splat. Yeah. It's like yeah, Nickelodeon yeah. met uh, – yeah. yeah, yeah, it was before Monster and all that stuff. I There were multiple reports of, you know, kids that drank like six or seven of those in a row. And so their caffeine dose is approaching one gram. And, yeah, you can get all sorts of side effects. So mostly GI distress, anxiety, jitteriness, et cetera. But, you know, if you happen to be a slow metabolizer or whatever or otherwise taking something that – uh, inhibits liver metabolism, metabolism of the stuff. Yeah, bad bad things can happen. Um, but in general, we think that uh, particularly coffee and also caffeine administration is relatively safe at a moderate dose. Uh, I'll tell you this though, my daily dose is greater than 400 milligrams a day, probably on average. Because if I'm having two cups of coffee, so already we're like 160 milligrams a day plus an espresso. So now we're like 240, 250, something like that. And then if I have two or 300 milligrams of caffeine prior to a workout, well, now look at me, you know, 450, 500, 550. And, uh, you know, so this letter, this is not like an evidence-based recommendation. It's just like, eh, we think this is probably fine. And uh, it would be nice if there were more guidelines, uh, you know, better established guidelines for this that were actually uh, evidence based. But I'm o- also okay with the 400 milligrams per day uh, to the general public. It's four to five cups of coffee. That's a that's a good amount of coffee. I mean, <laughs> somebody people are listening to this are like, "What are you talking about? That's just my warm up." You're like, "Well, maybe you're a fast metabolizer, bro. I don't know." Yeah, yeah, perhaps. S- sip one a two on, on point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there are other considerations here with how this is administrated that probably affects the safety profile, like the risk uh, versus benefit profile. So if you combine caffeine with alcohol, for example, shout out to Four Loco or, <laughs> you know, Red Bull vodka or, you know, whatever other sort of thing that people people are drinking, well, you can get a lot of caffeine and then a lot of alcohol at the same time. And, you know, the risk yeah, profile. The risk, for- is, the risk is less so from the, the, the caffeine use itself, but rather insofar as it can mask the impact of alcohol such that you can end up getting much more toxicity from that side of things, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as far, you know, the common questions that we get, though, have to do with basically like, what about the effect on the heart? 
or like the vascular system. So does it cause high blood pressure? Does it cause, you know, an arrhythmia or whatever? And as far as high blood pressure, eh, no, unless, unless you have are caffeine naive. So you've never had it before. We see this sort of short term, uh, increase in blood pressure after, you know, until the caffeine is, uh, metabolized and left your system. But if you become a habitual drinker, then there's really no effect on blood pressure. And in fact, there are some studies, uh, for habitual consumers that show an actual antihypertensive effect. And again, that's with coffee and it may be due to the other stuff that's in the coffee itself, not the caffeine, um, with energy drinks. Cause somebody's listening to this, they're like chugging a monster or Red Bull. I mean, this podcast isn't sponsored, but shout out to you know, Hanson energy drinks, whatever y'all, y'all want me to plug monster. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it, you know, they've even studied that directly and the actual effect on like heart rate, uh, for example, and blood pressure was not something I would ever care about. Like if it raises your systolic blood pressure in the short term by four or five <laughs> millimeters of mercury, I'm like, that's a measurement error as far as I'm concerned. Um, and when but, you say you know, in the short term, I mean, typically that's going to be over the course of a couple hours after the consumption exactly, of it. Not exactly. Like, yeah. It's going to stay five points high for a month. That's not if really what's happening. If, that's, if that it's would, five points higher for a month, risk. Yeah. that's right. That's right. Uh, now you said here, you linked a study, the iStop AFib randomized control trial, and you talk about tacky dysrhythmias. Now, one, I want kudos for pronouncing that word correctly. And then mm-hmm. two, I want you to tell the audience, what is a tachy dysrhythmia? <laughs> it's a very fancy word for basically saying an abnormal, abnormally fast heart rhythm. And so this is something that is very common. People may have heard of atrial fibrillation or AFib. They may know somebody who has it. They may have it themselves. There are several other kinds of um, abnormally fast heart rhythms like this that can you know, show up in the ER and then I'll get called to you know, potentially admit this person and evaluate them and things like that. Um, or they may get discharged from the ER, but a common question that these patients get asked is whether they, you know, drink a bunch of coffee or something like that. And so this is one of those things that uh, it's like, yeah, it makes sense, right? Caffeine has this stimulant effect. It's, you know, I, I bet that this would be a major trigger for this kind of thing, particularly at the levels of consumption in the population and knowing that, a, you know, atrial fibrillation is, is super prevalent. And so uh, if, if we would prefer if we're going to counsel patients uh, to either reduce their intake of coffee or caffeine to mitigate their risk of developing AFib, or if patients have it, uh, tell them to stop drinking coffee, which may be a healthful, health-promoting compound based on things that we've discussed earlier. Um, we would want to have good evidence to say that this is actually likely to, to help you um, beyond just it seems like it would make sense. And so there's been a fair amount of research looking into the extent to which uh, ca- uh, coffee intake uh, relates to these abnormal fast heart rhythms. A bunch of the kind of more correlational, epidemiological, associative data shows either no relationship or an inverse relationship, meaning that uh, higher amounts of coffee intake have a lower risk or a lower association with these kind of rapid heart rhythms. Of course, you have to try to control for several things there, not least of which is the fact that, hey, if somebody... um, tends to have these very fast heart rhythms and they think there is a relationship with coffee, then they will drink less of it. And so then that will look like those who drink less have a higher risk of these things. So that's kind of tricky there. And so there's been some other interesting research, including this one paper that came out, uh, I think it was in 2021. And I remember it made a bit, it was pretty interesting when it came out. It was somewhat big in the uh, cardiology, electrophysiology, internal medicine kind of world, particularly because it had a unique study design that I will not go into full depth on here. But again, it's called the, uh, it was basically abbreviated the iStop AFib randomized controlled trial. And and the bottom line of what they did is they had a bunch of people do a series of the so-called N equals one self experiment, basically trying to figure out what are their individual triggers for bouts of atrial fibrillation 
because there are a whole bunch of either known or purported triggers. Um, and caffeine turned out to not be one of them. The one that was that did emerge as a you know clear trigger for atrial fibrillation was alcohol use, which is also very well known, well established. Um, definitely, when I have patients who have issues with AFib, I try to get them to not drink uh, alcohol at all, if if possible, or mm-hmm. substantially reduce it to the extent that they drink uh, a bunch. But caffeine, coffee use, things like that, um, does is not really seeming to pan out as a major issue for these things. And so it is not a big focus in my conversations with, with patients who have this kind of an issue um, as, a, as a way to modify their, their risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, we're on the same page there. And then the last two uh, considerations, one we already covered has to do with the filtered versus unfiltered coffee. We talk about diterpenes. So the cafestol and how do you say? How do you think you say that? I have that? no idea, man. It looks like a yeah. Hawaiian word or something. Cat, cat we all or <laughs> who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's just another diterpene, so that may uh, affect blood lipids. But again, probably not. Certainly not. Actually, the biggest lever to pull with respect to lipid management. But you know, if you it's a thing. Got, it yeah. is a thing. Uh, and then last one has to do with uh, caffeine in pregnancy. So, uh, you know, do you, you're you're not seeing patients that are uh, trying to become pregnant or are pregnant anymore. But, you know, there's standardized uh, guidelines here as far as caffeine intake, and it's to keep caffeine intake under 200 milligrams per day. But, uh, you know, shout out to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This is not based in high-quality evidence. This is just like a consensus statement. We're like, yeah, this is, this is what we feel. And so, you know, I, I think risk-benefit – if it may, if the high intake of caffeine, which is associated with neonatal withdrawal, if that's been documented, I feel comfortable kind of just signing on there with the understanding that this is not based on like high quality evidence. Austin, you have any different takes on that? Nope, no different takes. I mean, I think that if they're slamming, you know, many, many monsters a day, then having them prepared for the possibility that <laughs> their their newborn may be unhappy when it comes out and gets that nasty withdrawal headache. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're going to have yeah. to deal with the consequences of that. Um, there, you know, there's some other, you know, theoretical situations if it relates to, you know, a, a low birth weight baby or, you know, growth mm-hmm. restricted kind of kind of things. But again, a lot of this is either based on similar kind of like mechanistic reasoning, hypothetical stuff, generally not super, super high quality evidence, but there's never going to be high quality evidence in so many things in the land of obstetrics. So that is what it is. Dude, I was, so when I was on wards uh, back during residency, I was like, man, I've never been more tired in my entire life. I wonder, can I get an IV of caffeine? (laughs) And not only is that an order set, you know, in, in the nursery. Yeah. Uh, well, but also like in adults, if you have, it's indication for, if you have a CSF leak, for I example. I actually use that in an adult with a CSF leak uh, about six months ago. Now you're I'm like, uh, ringing a bell there. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, can I get a CSF leak? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I looked at the classical presentation, you know, person, they have uh, headaches, disorientation, et cetera, every time they stand up or otherwise mm-hmm. active, but when they're lying, you know, uh, supine, perfectly fine, um, can be after some sort of traumatic experience, Mm -hmm. uh, like motor vehicle accident, football, stuff like that. And then while you're waiting to go get the patch, effectively a a procedure where they patch wherever the leak is coming from after they identify it on imaging, these folks are on IV caffeine. And I'm like, can we get that patient here? Mm -hmm. And then maybe we just double the order, you know, just for (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, you're ringing a bell. I had a patient who had this, uh, like I said, last year, and I remember being very interested in this uh, recommendation that came from our neurologist who who was involved in the case. And I was like, how does this even work? And I looked it up, and supposedly it increases the production of cerebrospinal fluid, which yeah. was the which was the idea. So uh, ultimately, the patient didn't really feel too much better on it than no. than, uh, than without it. So you know that was too bad for them. But but I felt <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, my choroid plexus was going ham, just, just <laughs> pumping out CSF. So yeah, all together for thinking about like the effects of uh and I, caffeine intake and coffee intake on health i would feel very comfortable saying that the habitual coffee intake is probably not contributing to the development of cardiovascular disease diabetes cancer liver disease etc and in fact if anything it's neutral to net good um if we're, if we're talking about coffee regular caffeine I feel less comfortable saying that just because I think that the other compounds contained in coffee are probably doing the heavy lifting here. Uh, And I also would say this is not saving millions of lives either. Our girl, our woman, we'll say, I don't, you know, whatever, our woman, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, it published in just trash tweet after trash tweet. This was from uh, (laughs) a month ago. Uh, I just, it, it was basically drinking two to three cups of coffee a day lowers all cause mortality by 23%. And it's like, what are you tweeting? Come on. Like, you know that whatever you just tweeted was absolute garbage. And like, now we're going to have to spend a bunch of time talking about it. Or we just say that, say that it's trash. And I'm just going to say that it's trash because that's not what it's doing. Uh, so yeah, I'm comfortable with people drinking coffee, particularly if it's black coffee. My caveats would be that if you take in so much that you're starting to experience symptoms of overdose, so jittery, GI distress, stuff like that, and or it's affecting your ability to sleep a sufficient quantity and quality per night, then it is not net benefit to you. So if you uh, are taking in a bunch of coffee or other caffeinated beverages, you know, late into the afternoon, into the evening, and you're having difficulties going to sleep, staying asleep, that would be one of the first places that I would start. And generally, I like a seven to eight hour buffer between the time you're supposed to go to bed and last caffeinated beverage. And that would also apply to things like nicotine, for example, or other stimulants that somebody might be taking in. But so, and, and, and similarly, again, like if you are consuming that much because you are very tired, yes. that is something that is worth evaluating because, hey, sleep apnea is common and high on my list of things that I'm suspecting in yeah. that kind of a situation. Yeah, or other sort of sleep disorders too. There's, yeah. there's plenty to evaluate there or, or even other you know medical conditions that could be contributing uh-huh. there. Fatigue yep. is heterogeneous that yep. way. Yep. Okay, question number three. What is the best way to administer caffeine? Now, if you've been listening to this, our podcast so far, you, this should be no surprise that we like coffee. Okay, but there are a number of other ways to administer caffeine. So you can do it in liquid form, coffee, energy drink, et cetera. There's capsules, gum, nasal spray. There's a mouth rinse. Each type of caffeine possesses slightly different absorption characteristics. Uh, So for example, the caffeine content from a cup of coffee is somewhere between 80 and 90 milligrams. It peaks in about a half hour to up to two hours later, depending on your liver. Energy drink typically has about double, so 160 milligrams of caffeine. It again peaks 30 to 150 minutes later on. Caffeine gum can have any amount of caffeine in it, uh, and it peaks faster, 5 to 15 minutes. But the interesting thing is people are more prone to overdosing on caffeine with caffeine gum because they're like, oh, it's just a piece of gum. I'll have two. I'll have three. And it's like, bro, that's 600 milligrams of caffeine. That's like you know more than you've taken in your whole life. Uh, but yeah, it peaks in like 5 to 15 minutes. Um, a funny story, back in uh, medical school, I got this caffeinated gum off Amazon. It was like advertised like military grade caffeinated gum. I'm like, 
perfect pre-workout. Let's go. I didn't read the label appropriately. Each piece had 300 milligrams of caffeine. And I'm a double gum guy. I, I take two pieces. That's what I want. So I took 600 milligrams of caffeine right to the dome. Uh, I instantly went to the bathroom and just <laughs> voided everything. I just, I'm like, wow, who needs a coffee enema when you have caffeinated you're, you're, gum? You're bowel prepped. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. I didn't need to go lightly. Yeah, I was ready to go. Uh, but yeah, ca- uh, caffeine capsules, again, varying amounts of caffeine per uh, capsule. It peaks a little bit slower than gum, 25 to 45 minutes. Caffeine powder, if you can find just caffeine anhydrous, uh, um, peaks in about 30 to 60 minutes, just like coffee and energy drink. The, there are other sources of administration like caffeine mouthwash and a nasal uh, nasal spray or nasal rinse. Those are not really absorbed um, and so would not recommend. Uh, there was a thought, for example, the caffeine mouthwash or nasal rinse. It would be similar to like swishing and spitting like a sugary substance. This has actually been studied. In, in fact, they, uh, one of the mouthwashes, they use Red Bull. They basically took a swig of Red Bull, swished it around their mouth, and then spit it out. And then they were like, what's the RPE now? And it's the same. It didn't change anything, not really absorbed. And also they did blood samples and they're like, eh, doesn't really, didn't really change um, any sort of uh, factors that we would associate with caffeine intake. But uh, when they used Red Bull that had sugar in it, there seemed to be a benefit. It was only when they actually went to the sugar-free Red Bull that they saw no effect. So it seemed like the sugar uh, mouthwash may actually do something. And that is a practice sometimes used in sport just for, for folks, uh, that are particularly endurance events. So, yeah. And since you mentioned that, um, earlier, I will say that insofar as we see significant, um, harms or toxicity from caffeine use, uh, in like clinically in, in medicine, um, it tends to be associated with that uh, caffeine anhydrous powder form. Yeah, um, people go shout crazy. Out to, shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, the the Poison Lab. No relationship or, uh, <laughs> or <laughs> there, but but uh, but it's a it's an excellent uh, toxicology focused podcast, and so that's um, uh, uh, where I learn about a fair amount of uh, you know toxicological <laughs> emergencies and poisonings and things like that that I don't ne- wouldn't necessarily see otherwise, and uh, caffeine uh, toxicity again. Like you are not just not going to get there from drinking coffee again. Something else, the the fluid overload, the hyponatremia, whatever the water intoxication is going to uh, affect you before the caffeine does. But caffeine anhydrous, the the straight powder, um, where you can just take as many hundreds of milligrams as you want, that's actually where some legitimate tox- uh, toxicity, overdose, and and uh, you know major health risk can can emerge from from that. So, I would not steer effectively anybody towards that myself. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But overall, if you're taking caffeine in orally, so coffee, energy drink, gum, capsules, powder, although again, we would not recommend that, it's rapidly and completely absorbed, um, usually within 45 minutes of ingestion. Uh, the metabolism, as mentioned earlier, can be affected by things like smoking, exercise, uh, et cetera, where metabolism is actually inhibited uh, to a small, uh, but you know, perhaps clinically significant degree. Uh, and then of note, with repeated administration, caffeine does not change its pharmacokinetics. So people talk about this tolerance effect. They're like, oh, I need to take a caffeine holiday because I've been taking so much caffeine. I'm not feeling the effects anymore. Uh, not feeling the effects anymore uh, is different than these actual measured ergogenic or performance benefits, particularly in cognitive-related tasks and also physical activity. So we do not see those effects in cognitive tasks and physical activity-related uh, tests. But, you know, if someone takes in caffeine, they're like, I don't feel as – I don't feel buzzed anymore. I don't feel like I'm up. It's like, okay, okay. but I'm not necessarily concerned with that. You might have habituated to that. 
become more tolerant of that, but the actual effects on your performance uh, do not appear to be changed via the existing evidence uh, that we have. So, uh, so just to make that super clear, so I, I, that might have been tricky to to follow, but there is some tolerance to quote unquote the buzz insofar as you might feel those effects. But even when you are habituated or quote unquote tolerant to those things, if you're still taking a sufficient dose of, of caffeine or even the same dose that you've been taking, the performance and cognitive benefits will still be there. Those don't necessarily habituate away. Is that accurate yep. as yep. far as what you're saying? Okay, very good. Yep. And if you stop taking it, yes, you can get withdrawal-like symptoms. Uh, these things, uh, symptoms include headache, irritability, nervousness, uh, reduced energy. However, we don't really know why this happens. Um, the development of withdrawal symptoms should not be confused with an addictive property because it does not appear that uh, caffeine or coffee have any convincing profile as an addictive drug. So I don't, you know, people are like, oh, we're addicted to coffee. It's like, but if just because you have withdrawal symptoms does not mean it's an addictive agent, so to speak. So with all that, let's get to the question number four. What is the correct dose for caffeine? And I think if you listen to this thing all the way through so far, you, you'd know that we'll just say as much as you can handle, just ha take it all. And if you don't feel it, up the dose. No. Um, there are a number of systematic reviews and meta-analyses that kind of give us this range for ergogenic or performance-enhancing dose of caffeine. That's somewhere in that three to nine milligrams per kilogram body weight range. And so if you weigh 220 pounds or 100 kilos, that's 300 to 900 milligrams uh, of caffeine about 30 to 45 minutes before whatever task you're trying to improve performance on. Now, that is a wide, wide range, uh, threefold, right? So it's like, how do you navigate this as a human, as an individual? I like to start people at the lower end, right? If they're like, yeah, I drink coffee regularly, but I don't, I haven't really done anything before a workout. So what do you recommend? I'm like, I don't know. If you like coffee and you're cool with that, try a cup or two before your workout, see how you feel. And if you're interested in like squeezing every ounce of performance out of a workout because it's a high priority workout or something like that, you could try three cups of coffee or, you know, and, and just systematically gradually increase the dose. Uh, I personally have never gone above 300 milligrams or so before a workout, mainly because once I, I go over that, I have done that on accident. Uh, not a good time. Um, but you know, everybody's different. If you got a healthy dose of SIP 1A2, maybe you're a 400 milligram person. Um, and this all assumes that you actually enjoy how caffeine uh, makes you feel. And if you don't, yeah, you can also just not take it, which is fine too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in somewhere in that 45 minutes before, uh, exercise somewhere around there, that would be fine. Um, if you're going to a powerlifting meet and you're listening to this and you're like, all right, well, when do I time this optimally? My trick is I tell people to have the caffeine, um, ideally coffee, uh, but whatever vehicle you're, you're, you're used to and prefer do it right before your last warm up on squats. The idea is you're going to take that last warm up. You probably got another 10 or 15 minutes before you take your opener and then another 20 to 30 minutes before you take your third attempt. And that's really when you want the calf. I mean, you want that at peak when you're taking your third squat attempt and that should tie you over uh, through bench press and you had a little bit on deadlift. I've seen people do like pre-workout dry scoop it before every squat bench deadlift. I'm like, bro, that is 900 milligrams or so or eight, you know, whatever. It's a lot of caffeine and it's stacking because you haven't had enough time to let the thing metabolize unless it's like an all day, like, you know, APA or WPO meet that lasts for 12 hours. And you're like, okay, well maybe in that case it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So we talked about 
all of these things, how to dose it, is caffeine safe, what does it do health and performance-wise? I think uh, I think we did it. Austin, anything you want to add to this steal? I don't think there's anything else I would add to this. We okay. covered uh, pretty thorough. Yeah. So we don't sell any coffee, but that would be my preferred way for you guys to get caffeine if you're if you're interested. Uh, we do have caffeine in some of our Perry RX. Uh, the dose is 300 milligrams uh, in there. And, you know, if you take it and you start feeling jittery afterwards, that might that dose might be too high. Straight up. Uh, but, you know, that was the dose that we went with. And uh, many people seem to do okay with it. But I, I would just caution you if you are not a habitual coffee or caffeine consumer and you're wondering, should I get the one with caffeine or the one without caffeine? I would get the one without caffeine. And then you can dose the caffeine as you want. If you work out at night, like you don't need to, t- you know, just don't take not it. Not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Not, not worth it. Cool. All right. Well, this has been the real episode 197, not the fake one. The real episode 197 uh, here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me today. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. All the links to the studies we talked about today are linked in the description below, as well as links to our seminar, apparel, website, newsletter list, etc. So we hopefully uh, hope that you click on some of those and uh, we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya. Thank you.